You're listening to TIP. Hi there. Welcome back to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast. We have a real treat for you today. Our guest is a legendary investor named Bruce Berkowitz. He's the chief investment officer and chairman of Fairhome Funds, which is based in Miami, Florida. Bruce is best known as the manager of the Fairhome Fund, which has crushed the market since he launched it at the end of 1999. By the start of 2024, the fund had returned a total of 942%, beating the S&P 500 by 529 percentage points. That's a huge margin of outperformance in a business where it's extremely difficult to beat the indexes over long periods of time. To put it another way, if you'd invested a million dollars in Bruce's fund at the start and had stuck with him through thick and thin over 23 years, your $1 million would have ballooned into more than $10 million. Like all of the great investors I've interviewed, Bruce has the courage and conviction to go his own way and defy conventional wisdom. In fact, the motto of his investment firm is, ignore the crowd. As I wrote in my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, the only way to beat the market is to diverge from the market. That's a task best suited to people who are, quite literally, extraordinary, both intellectually and temperamentally. Bruce certainly fits that mold. He's a true outlier with a remarkable willingness to make hugely aggressive, ultra-concentrated bets on a tiny number of stocks that are often deeply out of favor. Personally, I love the fact that the best investors tend to be these free-thinking mavericks who care more about being right and winning the game than about earning public approval. But the truth is that it's terribly hard psychologically to go against the crowd as a fund manager because there are times where you're bound to make embarrassing mistakes or you'll be out of sync with the market for several years and you can easily look like a hapless fool. We've seen this with everyone from Warren Buffett to Bill Miller and Bill Ackman, all of whom have suffered periods of poor performance when they were widely criticized and often ridiculed for supposedly losing their touch. For most investors, I think it's just much easier to own index funds and not even attempt to beat the market. As you'll hear in this conversation, Bruce Berkowitz has endured plenty of ups and downs on his rocky path to long-term outperformance. In his first decade as a fund manager, everything he touched turned to gold. Morningstar named him as its domestic stock fund manager of the decade back in 2009. The following year, Fortune magazine hailed him as arguably the top mutual fund manager on the planet. Money flooded in, as you'd expect, and he hit a peak of $20 billion in assets under management. Then, almost inevitably, he suffered a series of pretty brutal setbacks, including the bankruptcy of Sears, which was a major holding, and a painful loss on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac when the government grabbed both companies and placed them in a conservatorship, basically vaporizing his investment. A lot of shareholders bailed out of Bruce's fund, unable to handle the volatility. As a result, he now manages about $1.4 billion, including hundreds of millions of his own money. Bruce, who grew up with pretty much nothing, is very philosophical about all of this. He keeps plugging away, making big, bold bets on resilient businesses that he expects to thrive over many years. Some people will be somewhat shocked to hear that his fund is now riding almost entirely on two stocks. Well, actually, that's a slight exaggeration. In reality, about 80% of his fund is invested in just one stock. Yep, one stock. If you're anything like me, 
I'm sure you'll be fascinated to hear more from the extraordinary Bruce Berkowitz. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi, folks. I'm really thrilled to welcome our guest, Bruce Berkowitz, a famously bold and concentrated investor who's managed the Fair Home Fund for the last 24 years or so. It's lovely to see you, Bruce. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be talking with you. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your early years. I know that you grew up in a fairly gritty working class suburb of Boston called Chelsea, where your father owned a corner convenience store. And I'm wondering if you could describe the store and the neighborhood and then give us a sense of what you learned about business from spending so much of your early life in this corner store? The store was a typical corner grocery store where, as you would call it, a bodega. People would, you know, working class people, blue collar people would come in in the morning, buy some cigarettes, cup of coffee, newspaper. And this was before the day of the lottery ticket. So they would play a number or they would gamble a small amount of money and uh, then they'd go on to the bus or the train and get to work and they would work their jobs and they'd dream all day about maybe winning a few hundred dollars and they'd reverse the process uh, coming back. They'd see you in the afternoon, they'd find out whether or not they won, get another pack of cigarettes, maybe Diet Coke, whatever. And that, in those days, the afternoon newspaper, then off to home and uh, repeat the process. It was uh, very interesting, the characters and People were working hard to, uh, to make a living, and uh, I enjoyed that store a lot growing up, from getting up at uh, you know, 4.35 in the morning, picking up the donuts that were still hot. I used to always remember a couple of fresh donuts right out of the vat with a cup of coffee. And, uh, I enjoyed it, and people, uh, you learned a lot about people. You wrote an essay many years later that was, it was actually the introduction to part four of securities analysis, the the famous book by Ben Graham and David Dodd. And you started the essay, which was called Go With The Flow by talking about really the lessons, the lessons in cash flow for people who understood a store like that. And you ended, you ended the essay with a sentence where you said, one way or another, if there's enough money in the cash register, somebody will find a way to get it out referring to activists and dividends and share buybacks and the like. Could you talk about what actually, in a very tangible, physical, visceral way, you learned about cash and free cash flow as the lifeblood of a business, just from actually being there, watching the till, and I assume sometimes manning the till yourself? Well, the cash register, uh, that's all that counted. With the cash, you know, cash goes in, cash goes out. Cash goes out to pay for your inventory to pay your employees, to pay the taxes, your rent, cash comes in on the products you're selling. And really, at the end of the day, the day was judged by what was left in the cash register, what the difference was from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. And I've always, I've always used that analogy to look at businesses, to follow the cash, count the cash. I mean, the cash did not lie. I mean, no matter what you may have put into a ledger, what was in the cash register counted? 
There was a lovely line from an interview that you did with uh, the late and beloved Outstanding Investors Digest, which is a wonderful publication. There's an interview you did back in 2009, where you said, I've always acted based upon the free cash flow of companies relative to their price in the marketplace. And that seemed to me such an essential understanding of how the stock market works. Can, can you talk about that a little bit, that, that simple yeah, observation? So my, yes. My, my best decisions, uh, you know, a lot of the very good decisions I made were based upon the figuring out the distributable cash a company had, how much cash they were generating after spending what they had to, to maintain the, uh, the steady state of the operation. Sticking to those numbers were quite important, especially in uh, you know analyzing the banks and financial services companies and all else. Because at the end of the day, all you can spend is cash, and the cash is uh, what is going to determine your liquidity and uh, your balance sheet. And there are so many accounting tricks. Gap doesn't uh, does not at all times portray the uh, reality of, of a business especially when it comes to depreciation, amortization, uh, or very or all the non-cash, non-recurring charges, non-cash and non-recurring charges. And your father, whose name I believe was Barney Berkowitz, ran a, um, a bookmaking outfit out of the corner of the, the store, if I'm, if I'm right in thinking. And I had read a story that he had a heart attack when you were maybe 15 or 16, and you, you actually quit high school for a, a couple of months and took over the bookmaking operation. Can you, can you confirm what, what actually happened and what you learned from the experience? Well, I don't, I don't know where you dug that one out, but uh, pretty good. Uh, <laughs> it was a fabulous experience. I learned more during those couple of months. Uh, I remember five in the morning, I turned into an adult. And you know, five in the afternoon, I became a kid again. I remember it was an all-cash business. I, to this day, I remember having the 20s in one pocket, the 10s in another, fives. I, I don't know, I, the ones went into a cigar box. But uh, it was a great business. Uh, I, was, I ended up making about $2,000 a week. It, was, it was, took about, I think, 10 years after that for me to make that kind of money. But it was amazing how the, the, the love for people to gamble and how it destroyed so many people. I always thought that in psychology was, was quite perverse, where you have someone who would easily lose money gambling, but uh, would be outraged to pay 25 cents for a cup of coffee. And this was horse racing, baseball games. What, what, what were you doing? You were making odds on, was, on these things? Uh, it was uh, horse racing, dog tracks, football cards. Uh, the, 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 num the so-called number lottery system was based upon, I believe, the paramutual system at a, uh, at a horse race track. And that's what would determine the so-called, supposedly a random process. But uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a tough town with some tough places, uh, but not the, uh, I think, uh, a few crooked racetracks and so on. So it was always interesting. But yeah, people were betting all sorts. That was the Daily Race form was a publication most people read as opposed to the Herald uh, or the Boston Globe. And I mean, in my, in, in my book, I wrote in the introduction about how I'd come basically to think of the most skillful investors as consummate game players. And I was pointing out that it was no coincidence that many of these top-notch 
money managers would play cards for pleasure and profit. So I, I was mentioning the fact that John Templeton told me how he paid for his college during the Great Depression with his poker winnings in part. Buffett and Munger obviously play bridge. Peter Lynch told me that he played poker. And I remember him telling me actually that it was when I asked him to recommend books, he said, no, it's much more helpful to play poker if you want to learn about investing because it teaches you all about probabilities. And likewise, Ed Thorpe talked to me about winning at blackjack and, and then even at roulette. And so I came to think about investing really as this way to stack the odds very consciously and consistently in your favor. And so one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by your experience there is that I think you had this very early up-close lesson in probabilities and odds and, and the way people screw up these things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, the whole process behind gambling is it would start in Las Vegas with, I believe it was Nick the Greek, if I remember correctly, who was the most famous of odd makers, who would have the starting odds for a game. And then based upon the flow of money, who was betting on what, that those odds would change. And there were all sorts of arbitrage. The odds would be different in Austin, and it would be in New York if Boston was playing New York, and so on. And uh, my only job was to try and balance the book, try and get it equally weighted so that no matter who won or lost, I made something. And I always had a 50% partner above me who sort of unknown partner that was always a, a telephone voice away. And I was a minor. So I, I knew that I, you know, it was something that this was not something I wanted to do as an adult because I thought it's, there are no second chances here. But I do remember one good story. Someone came into the grocery shop, never saw the person before, and he bet a very large amount of money on a broken down nag of a horse in Suffolk Downs that had huge odds against winning. And I took the bet and I said, there's something wrong here. This is not the person who comes in with a dollar or two dollars. I mean, this person is putting a large amount on crazy, uh, with, at crazy odds. So, you know, you have your option in that business. You can call upstairs and you can give it away to the person above you. So I said, I don't want to have anything to do with this bet. So I made a phone call. I said, I'm, I'm taking this bet. Do you want it to this, this unknown person on the other line? And the person took it. And of course, the horse won. And, uh, Mysterious person comes in with two shop bags of money. Person comes and collects their winnings. And that mysterious voice calls me and says, kid, never give me a bet like this again. So that something made me say, no, 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 no. There's something, something wrong. This bet is out. of It just doesn't make sense. The, the risk is way too high. This, is, this can come back and, and bite you. So I, that, always that always stuck out to me. That and... The fact that how people were so willing to lose their money. Why do you think they were so willing to lose their money? I mean, because they approach, they approach the stock market in the same sort of way, right? Like I, I remember a, a, a few years ago, some friends of mine, I mean, I, I, knew them, I knew them when they first had a kid at the same time as I first had a kid. And I saw them working so hard for their money. And then a couple of years ago, they were calling me and they were like, yeah, we, we, we're thinking we should just buy like Tesla and this and this and this and like just roll the dice. And I was like, what's the money for? Is it for like five years away, 10 years away? And they're like, no, it's our son's college fees for next semester. And you're like, really? 
and and it, it you know and I, I i i don't know it was just it was just terrible like the the instinct to gamble like my wife is always saying really you think the stock market's that different than the than the betting shop yeah oh, it's greed and envy it's it's as simple as that. You, you just see everyone around you making money on Tesla. You, you go out, you listen to people who you're sharing a dinner with, telling you how much money you've made. And you, you, on TV, you hear about all of these positive outcomes. You, you never hear about the losers and people that wiped out, wiped out their college savings or whatever. You just, you hear the good stories and no one tells you really about their losses. They want to tell you about about how good they are in their wins, and it gets to be too much for you. It's just, uh, it's too, it's, it, why am I, why am I not part of this? I remember it happened to me when I was living in New Jersey. I told my wife uh, at the time that, you know, I can't, we can't go out for dinner anymore. If I listen to another person tell me about how much money they're making day trading uh, in the stock market, I just, I just can't, I can't take it. We, we can't go out anymore until there's a crash and people become sensible again. And do you think those early years when you were working in, in, in the bookmaking business, like, did you see disaster that made you think, that made you so averse to loss? I mean, was there something visceral about seeing people losing blood money? Oh. Well, in the early days, I wasn't adverse to loss because I had nothing to lose, uh, and nor did my family. I mean, the whole neighborhood. I mean, that was my world. You know, when you grow up in a certain neighborhood, uh, some people never leave that neighborhood until they're uh, you know, an adult. Until they have, they have to they have to get on a bus to take a job. So uh, I, I was. Uh, I was very much interested in how to make money. And corner shop was interesting, very hard work. The bookmaking was much easier, but was much riskier. You had to deal with people that uh, I didn't think was that healthy to deal with. I, I knew I was going to have a very short career in the bookmaking business. It wasn't as if I was in London or England or I was at Stanley Leisure and so on. And, uh, or Ladbrooks at the time. But, uh, and I once looked at investing in the business, but in the end, I couldn't because I saw the people that the Friday comes around, you take your check to the corner store or to the bookmaking shop in, in Birmingham, you cash it. And by the time uh, Friday evening comes rolling around, you've already lost most of the money and your family isn't going to eat. Now your family needs a loan. I just, I don't think it was a very honorable way to make money. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember interviewing a famous investor for my book who I, I won't name. And he had made a lot of money investing in casinos at one point. And I said to him, do you gamble yourself? He's like, no, never. It's moronic. I would never do that. And I sort of pointed out that there was something slightly tawdry in that, right? That he was sort of exploiting the worst in human nature. And he he was sort of slightly taken aback, I think, that I said that. And he was like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's right. But there does seem something unseemly about it. You know, I can understand if someone has to feed their family and they don't have any savings and they're making a living the best way they know how and they're, they're not hurting anyone, physically hurting anyone. But, you know, once you start to make some money and, you know, you, you have enough hamburgers to eat, enough pizza, I just don't see the point of it. It's, it's not beneficial to society. 
Yeah, and I, I feel bad being sounding moralistic about it, so I apologize in advance to anyone who's offended. But... No, no, not <laughs> Well, you know, I, I you, you put yourself in the other person's shoes, right? I I would not want to lose all my money playing roulette, knowing that you're going to lose all of your money. I remember Ed Thorpe saying to me when I asked him if he gambled, and Ed, I always regarded as probably the, the, the greatest game player of all investors. He said, as far as gambling is concerned, if I don't have an edge, I don't play. And that seems to me such a such a smart and fundamental insight. Right. And what's your the house? Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I just had a I have a friend in London who uh, owned Crockford's, same person who owned Stanley Leisure. Huh. Uh, and I would go to the casino and I would just watch you know, these individuals, mysterious individuals come in with a cashier's check for five million pounds and they go from one roulette wheel to another. I mean, they did not even wait for the num to see which number the ball landed on. They would just depend upon the uh, croupier or whoever it is to tell them and they couldn't spend it fast enough. And my friend had one recurring nightmare that they would win, but then they would lose it somewhere else. He was very happy for people to win. It was the greatest marketing in the world. He just hoped, he just always hoped that they would uh, come back and lose it place which where they wanted. Back in my youth, I was obsessed with gambling, but also with the history of gambling. And I studied the guy that Crockford's was based on. There was a there was a history book about him, and he was this, if I remember rightly, this sort of working class guy who basically ruined a generation of the richest, dumbest English aristocrats. And I remember they would go in there and they would literally they would bet on whether one raindrop or the other would reach the bottom of the window pane first. And you would have these moronic guys from schools like I went to, like Eaton, who would literally lose their entire country estate because, you know, one raindrop, uh, hit, you know, got to the bottom slower. So you really and, see yeah. the insanity of it. Well, and in its most extreme form, it's a sickness because it's a sickness to the point where people would, re would prefer gambling and losing than not gambling at all. Yeah. And, so did uh, you ever you gamble yourself that. after that, or did you you start with the gambled. stock market? Really, never gambled. I used to a couple of times. I went to a casino with, with someone who did gamble, and I immensely enjoyed just watching the action. And uh, he gave me a lesson on how to get comped in every major casino in Vegas without spending any money. I did enjoy that, but for a day or two, but. Uh, I never went back and never gambled. I, I don't have the I don't have the memory for gambling and gambling done well is is, is tedious. But I, I don't no, I, I don't see how it helps anyone. And uh, and a lot of people have built a lot of beautiful uh, casinos. Yeah. So you you also your dad his other job I guess was driving a taxi part time. And I remember you once saying the part of your motivation in getting ahead in life was that you didn't want to end up driving taxes like your dad. Like, why not? I mean, what, what was he like and what did you learn from looking at his life and how tough it was? Well, it's a, t it's a tough life driving a taxi, but you know, by nature, my father was a gambler and he wasn't a very good gambler. So you know, you know, no matter what he earned, it disappeared. So I learned a lot from the failures of the gambler. Huh. Taught me a lot of what not to do. And it, uh, it, you know, and uh, it, it didn't bother me much uh, 
So I felt as if I was having an out-of-body experience growing up. What was he like? Worked very hard. Worked from five in the morning to nine at night and worked like a mule. Never got ahead and always figured, couldn't figure it out. Couldn't figure out the formula. So in a way, your, some people, your life has sorry? been, a, so in some ways, your life has been a reaction to that. You know, you've, you've solved the puzzle better than your dad. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. I just thought, why would, it, why would anyone want to have that kind of misery? Huh. And what was your mom like? I was the first generation to, I think, to graduate from high school, let alone to go to college. So she was a typical stay-at-home mom who, uh, together with my father, dreamt the dream, the great American success. They never kind of figured out how to do it, but the strategy was mostly one of hope. They must have been pretty awed by your success. I know, I know they, they lived to see a good deal of it, right? Yes, they got, to see, they got to see the beginning. My father died young. Mother made it. Yep, they were, uh, my father died knowing he didn't have to worry about anything. And so did my mother. So uh, I think in the end, they felt they accomplished their mission, huh. taking care of their children. Nice, nice. So you, to go back to the, the chronology of your story, you studied at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I think you were the first in your family to attend college. You, you got a BA in economics. You graduated, I think, in 1980. And I remember seeing that in, in one week, you turned 21, graduated, and got married to your college sweetheart, Tracy, who you're still married to all these years later. Uh, and yes. then you went off to, to Manchester in England, where my mom is from in about 1981 to join this firm, Strategic Planning Institute. Am I right in thinking that it's around that time that you started trading stocks, that you would go into the Merrill Lynch office in Manchester and would, would trade? Is that, is that where you started? I started that with a friend uh, 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 during high school where I wasn't old enough to have an account. So I opened up, I used his account. And then uh, when I was at university, instead of taking uh, normal courses, I would just take independent studies to help professors publish finance papers on uh, how to beat the stock market or uh, management consulting or, you know, you know, to growth share matrices, uh, do regression analysis, which I really didn't understand at all, but whatever they needed. So I really went four years at university of you know, working for young professors who were looking for tenure. And so I ended up as, uh, you know, in, as economics courses, uh, much of which I don't have the slightest idea about to this day in terms of Lagrangian multipliers and uh, uh, linear algebra. I have no idea, but got it done. They needed work done. So I did the research forum, which ended up getting me a job with a management consulting firm in Cambridge the Strategic Planning Institute, which was a, uh, a cross between General Electric and the Harvard Business School, so about how you can, using statistical analysis, you can sort of drill down to the, the basic characteristics of successful business. And then you have a bunch of people with no experience then go to business managers and explain to them how their businesses worked. And uh, yeah, eventually went over to London, started an office in uh, London because there was a professor at the uh, Manchester Business School 
was a who was a consultant for the firm. So we went to the Booth School, I believe it was Booth School of Business in Manchester, uh, and just in time for the Moss Side riots. Huh. I remember. Huh. And then you you started to invest at Merrill, and then got hired at Merrill. Like what what happened and there? I still started to make money in in the management consulting, and it was. Uh, it's a 24-7 job, so moved down to London, living out of a hotel. So it was great. It's like the hotel was paid for, four meals a day it was paid for. I learned all about afternoon tea and how to quickly gain 20 pounds. <laughs> and you were able to take your salary check and just bank it. And that's, yes, and I opened up an account at Merrill Lynch and started to invest and uh, realized that... Uh, this is just another form of bookmaking, but this is a legal form of bookmaking. This is great. No matter what I do, the broker wins. There's something to this. <laughs> so I learned about, at that time, uh, London was considered part of the Middle East. It was London in the Middle East, and it was on uh, Old Bond Street on the Time Life Building. Yeah, that's so, where uh, I, I, went, I worked there. I was at I was at I edited the European Middle East and African edition of Time. But by that but that by that time we had moved. We moved south of the river. But yeah, that was in the Grand Old Day. That was a beautiful building as well where you were. I just built you know, it was right. Uh, it was uh, no, it's fabulous building and uh, yeah, I, so I told the uh managing director there what he wanted to know and uh ended up with a job. He said, you know, why should we hire you? You don't come from any money. You're not from England. I said, yeah, but I think I'm going to make you a lot of money. And for some reason, he appreciated that. And uh, he hired me as a young broker. And I was, I was very lucky. And why do you think they, you were so good at it? What, what was it about you that made you good as a salesman and good at picking stocks? Or were you not yet good at picking stocks? I, I, you didn't have to be good because we were in that period from Volcker of uh, ultra high interest rates uh, starting to head down from uh, 1980. Uh, so if you were uh, involved in fixed income uh, and you were bullish, I mean, you couldn't help but make money. And those were the days of zero coupons and 30-year strip securities and tigers and cats and, and warrants on strips. And uh, it, it was an amazing area. And uh, it did very well. And it was, uh, did very well. And every time I wanted a bonus, I ended up with a membership to a club. Huh. Mark's Club, Harry's Bar. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it was great. But uh, it went on and on. And I started to make some reasonably good money. Then I was approached by uh, Lehman Brothers. I wanted to do more Merrill Lynch. They were very happy with what I was doing. We wanted to go into the asset management side because I thought that, uh, you know, I, I need now, I've made enough now. I, I want to start to do, you know, I want to start to invest my own money. And I want to develop a rule where I'll only invest other people's money the way in which I will invest my money. So we'll, and that didn't really go over very well in the brokerage world. That, that was considered a conflict of interest. So I ended up opening up the uh, Lehman Brothers office in the West End. Yeah, so you were at Lehman for a few years, right? And then, and then went to New Jersey for them as well, I believe, as a senior portfolio manager. 
Yeah, went, yeah, went to Manhattan, started a portfolio management program, and then I was the only employee that left Lehman Brothers to go to Smith Barney Asset Management uh, at the time when uh, Lehman Brothers uh, was being se- was, was being separated out. When you look back on those years, you obviously saw a lot of regular investors doing dumb things and failing, and so I mean, you could you could see the rubbish they were being sold by other unscrupulous brokers or people who didn't know what they were doing. You could see high expenses and the like. You, I assume you could see all of the emotions running high. Like, What did you see sort of from the belly of the beast that enabled you to understand, okay, well, that's, that's the type of investor I don't want to be? Well, in its purest form, it's a bucket shot. There were people you know, just figuring out ways to take money from people who had it in the form of commissions and uh, and hidden fees it was it was shocking i had a friend absolutely in those shocking days. a friend of mine in london got me to open a brokerage account back i mean i must have been about 21 right i mean i had about three dollars and um and he was like yeah no it'll be great because you'll be able to um you you can cancel it in a few weeks but i'm going to get the points for you uh you know the incentive for you opening it and so he he just had sort of rigged the whole the whole system. None of it really was to do with uh, the client at all, right? And yes, and you could see the behavior of of the people there. They knew deep down inside they knew what they were doing was wrong, and they were very self destructive. Mm. But I remember, and uh, as before going back to the United States uh, when I joined Lehman Brothers, I started. Uh, you know, again, investing the fixed income markets were doing unbelievably well, but I decided there's a better way to invest. And as most people by accident, you find out about Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch or Bill Fisher, you read and you read and you say, all right, this makes sense. This makes a lot more sense than what you're hearing from, the, from brokerage firms. And then you try and do it in your own way. But that is a different way to invest. And it's not as profitable for the brokerage firm or for the broker. So there was a process that you have to go through where you're literally taking two, three, four, five steps back in order to go to go forward. You know, the idea of buying something and holding it, it's not very profitable. And you came very early to this almost defining feature of your investment career, which is a tremendous amount of concentration in a very small number of stocks. Am I right in thinking that there was a point when you were at Smith Barney Investment Advisors where basically your portfolio was like two stocks, one of which was Berkshire? Berkshire, yes. Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway. Fireman's Fund at the time, Fund American Enterprises, or at one point it was a huge position in Wells Fargo when the banks were getting hit. Yes, I always enjoyed getting into the minutia and trying to understand the business as opposed to sort of roughly understanding a lot of things I wanted to try and better understand or fewer industries. Was there a and lot it, of um, sort of kickback from your bosses? I mean, were they appalled at the idea that you would have so much money in so few stocks or would, did it not really matter? Oh, it did matter in the uh, in the asset management area. I mean, they, they, there was no way I was going to manage one of their funds. Uh, I had my clients. My clients were fine with my style, but it was totally against what what every 
so-called portfolio manager what was doing with the money. It's just they're, they're closet indexers who need to be in a lemming-like group so that no matter what happens, no one gets blamed. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Why do you think you could handle it emotionally and psychologically, the, this tremendous concentration? Because now, as we'll get to later, I mean, when I looked at your most recent for the Fairhome Fund, you had about 82% in one stock, which is St. Joe, which we'll talk about more, the tiny stake in um, enterprise, well, not tiny, but not big in enterprise products partners, and then sort of rounding errors in things like Berkshire and Imperial Metals and like. So it's really like a two-stock portfolio and almost like a one-stock portfolio, which a lot of people would look at and be like, that's insane. And I'm wondering like what it is in your, in your personality and, and in your intellectual understanding about how to win the game of investing that, that led you to this 
real ultra concentration. Well, to have 82% in one company is very unusual. And you, you have to, uh, you have to understand uh, how that developed. I mean, when I, when I bought St. Joe, it was a two, 3% position in the Fairholme fund. And then over the years, the position grew and the huge success that I had in the fund was followed by huge uh, declines in the shareholders of fund. So it became a bigger and bigger position as there was less money in the fund and as the position and, and appreciated. So as you know, if someone's selling the fund, the remaining shareholders are buying more of what's left in the fund unless you decide to, uh, to sell it on a pro rata basis. Which I did not. I, you know, I've been involved in the company for a long time. I'm chairman of the company. And in the last 10, 15 years, I've been trying to figure out a way in which I can make certain investments that potentially can stand the test of time. That's something that I'll feel comfortable with my children and their children owning to the extent that that is possible. So, one study, when you look at wealth, in the United States and around the world, it does fascinate me to the extent that that wealth is built upon real estate, uh, income-producing uh, income real estate. And uh, I tried to understand why. I ended up moving to Florida. I learned about St. Joe Company, which is developed by a DuPont around the Great Depression, who at one point was the largest landowner in Florida. And I saw everything that was going on in Miami and up and down the East Coast and in Naples, the West Coast. And I thought it was just a matter of time that uh, such events would happen in Northwest Florida, which uh, is very, very reminiscent of the Hamptons with the East-West beaches, except the dunes are much nicer in Northwest Florida than they are in the Hamptons. And you have a house uh, in the Hamptons as well, right? So you, Yes, yes, yes. My wife has a house in the Hamptons. With her, her bribe to move to Florida, <laughs> she was worried about not not enjoying Florida. So, uh, the house in the Hamptons was her fiftieth birthday present to say, "Let's give Florida a shot." And of course, comes to worse, you you can move to the Hamptons. Ha, ah, nice. So, um, so you started buying back in I think two thousand and eight, and then two thousand and nine, and then you stopped buying around two thousand and ten, and then. This is a long and winding road with St. Joe, right? Like you pushed out the CEO more or less in 2011 and ended up only about 30% of the company's shares in going on the board and, and selecting other members of the board. So you really took control of your destiny in a way. Can you talk about the importance in a way of, I mean, I guess this is partly the lesson of your misadventures with Sears, which we can talk about as well, the learning learning the importance of having control over your own destiny if you're going to have a really big bet like this. Yes, and you have to be responsible to all shareholders. I mean, my, my, my fight with the Joe people are that they were wasting the shareholders' money. They really did not know what they were doing. You have to understand that how St. Joe started. The ownership of St. Joe was, was basically, St. Joe, I should say, was basically owned by two trusts the DuPont Trust and the Nemours Trust. So it was from a DuPont who passed away, his brother-in-law took over, a couple more executives. But it, it was really a charitable trust, which were the, uh, the owners of St. Joe. 
And the trustees, uh, the trustees, the directors of St. Joe, they, they treated it as their own personal playground. So I made a concerted effort to ask them to leave. And I thought that this company had such wonderful, wonderful assets and still does, but, and that they were slowly given away or burned up uh, when it was cold out that, uh, that they had to go and that the company could be run for much less and needed to focus on their, their shareholders, their owners, and everyone had to be treated well. So I ended up putting myself in that position. So I thought I might as well carry on. And uh, St. Joe today is doing more in a year than they've done in 10, 15 years. And uh, we're witnessing the great migration south now, where Florida is the place to be, Texas. Uh, the, 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 you know, the migration trends are quite amazing. Property values, the ability to get work done all important issues, safety, it's all coming across. And St. Joe is a major beneficiary of, of those trends. You were saying it's, and, it's uh, now the third most populous state in the U.S. and has the largest population growth rate. And I think you were saying that Northwest Florida, where, where this is based, is growing even faster than the rest of, the Florida, of Florida. So in some ways, yeah. you're aligning yourself with what you've called a, a multi-decade wave to surf. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes, man, I'm building a home there. I don't know if I can convince my wife to move there, but uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, it's very pleasant. People like to work. There's, there's a sort of libertarian freedom. There's respect for law and order. The weather's fantastic. The cost of living is quite reasonable. You know, the school systems are all developing uh, nicely. The infrastructure is being laid in. And it's working, and the, the company is making very nice progress on a, a yearly basis and has a 50-year road ahead of it where uh, as long as people keep moving south, the company has a huge amount of land and resources to take advantage of that migration. In a way, it's about as far philosophically from what you were doing or what your peers were doing back in those days at Merrill and Lehman and the like, right? I mean, this is it's about as far from speculation, much closer to viewing investing as running a business. Yes. I mean, to, you know, uh, to keep going, I am, uh, my pursuit is towards running, the, running businesses and to better understand the dynamics. I think investing is best done when it's most uh, business-like. That doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes, and, and clearly I have. But you know, that St. Joe is a very good example about, you know, defense, not losing, protecting against inflation, you know, making time a valuable asset and, uh, and uh, population growth. And there, there's a lot of elements to it. And I, I feel comfortable being the chairman of St. Joe. I think that we have a great management team, who, you know, really uh, doing quite well, continuing to progress. And it's, it, it's showing. It's showing in the, you know, the area is a blank canvas. It's showing now in hotels and apartments, which were never done, residential communities going up everywhere. It's the development of a town. Sort of reminds me a little bit, uh, remember the, the game SimCity, where you had a blank canvas and all of a sudden you had to, you had to lay, you have to lay in all the infrastructure. It's interesting because in, uh, in, in some ways, 
it seems from my understanding, from my reading about it, that you de-risked the investment in various ways, right? It was a money losing business. So you changed the management, you restructured the business. There, at a certain yeah. point, there was a buyback of stock. There was, so yeah, we, you know, you, we bought a third of the company, 37% of the company back at a very good price. There's no, you know, they're, they're net debt free at the corporate level, uh, you know, plenty of liquidity, very conservatively leveraged. And, uh, you know, building up, going from 100 homes a year to approaching, you know, 2,000 homes and home sites a year, from zero apartments to, you know, over 1,000 apartments to one small hotel to over 10 hotels, you know, a club, uh, you know, thousands of members, uh, whether it's golf, beach, it's the whole ecosystem. And, and St. Joe does a very good job of, Helping the community, donating land for whether it was the international airport or for school systems or for a medical campus. It's nice to see it working. It's nice to see the cash flows too. I, I mean, it's interesting to me because in some ways it gets at this broader theme in your whole career of trying to be a durable investor, right? Trying to survive. And it's interesting when we look it, back at things like Merrill and Lehman, both of them went under, right? So. I mean, in a way, when you think about survival and the lessons of Lehman's demise, Merrill's rescue, and how you've tried to set up St. Joe's so that it survives, what, what does this tell us about how to actually survive as a long-term investor? Well, maybe if I'm a masochist, I don't know, I'm constantly taking five steps backwards in order to hopefully advance much further. But you know this. Uh, but yeah, this now is about uh, my remaining investors, my family, and and trying to lay in some durable investments that, that I don't have to that I, that I won't have to worry about. I mean, you always have to study situations, and the only constant is is change. But uh, there have been multiple generations of success with real estate, and it's a uh, it's a it, it's been an initially a slow game. And it's it's a little hard to understand because of the uh, the end values. Most people really can't see beyond a few years, and then after five, ten years, everything's discounted to zero. But you know, you go through ten years and you you quadruple, quintuple earnings, and you do it with using very little a small percentage of the land, you start to get a, a sense of what's what's possible in the future. It's no more than the history of what happened in Miami or Fort Lauderdale or Sarasota or Naples or or any community that's developed. Uh, I'll give you an example of about Orlando. You know, years and years ago, a gentleman comes into the St. Joe office way before my time, decades before my time. And wants to talk with the uh, Ed Ball, the CEO of St. Joe. Ed Ball's a busy, important man in Florida. So he keeps him waiting, waiting, waiting. And then eventually, uh, this gentleman has passed a note from Ed Ball. And he opens the note and he reads it. it. says, Dear Mr. Disney, I'm sorry, but we don't do business with carnival people. Huh. Disney wanted to create Disney World on St. Joe's land. It had every it had the ocean, the beaches, the freshwater lakes. It had the elevation. A lot of people don't understand that St. Joe's land, the uh, average elevation is you know, 20, 30 feet up. You have the beach, then you have a bluff, except on the bays. 
and then it slowly rises to about 70 to 100 feet, the highest elevation in the, the Florida is in Walton County, which is one of St. Joe's counties. So Walt Disney figured it out. This was the place for Disney World. And Ed Ball said no. So then he quietly started to buy up farmland in Orlando. Rest, you know the story. So, so let's say you're right long-term and you, this is just a, a time arbitrage and you just have a hell of a lot more patience than most investors. How even so do you respond to people who cop that it's irresponsible and reckless to have 82% of your portfolio in one stock, which is a very, it's a not unreasonable point to make, right? No, not at all. I mean, I, I keep selling St. Joe. I've been selling St. Joe for, for years and years and years. I sell it. It's growing. People have taken money out of the fund. I am now, uh, I and my affiliates own about 38% of the fund. So between 38% plus cash in the fund, I mean, I don't find it unreasonable. The worst, the worst case may be that I'm the only shareholder left and owning, uh, owning St. Joe. But it's not as if I bought more or I've been holding it. I mean, I've been selling St. Joe to try and get that down. But St. Joe had a very good year last year. Sorry. It's back to, it's back to 80%. At a certain point, they'll sell some more and, uh, and we'll see. Shareholders don't like it. I'll end up being the only shareholder. But, uh, and, but I'll, I'll continue to, uh, I will continue to lighten the load of St. Joe. And uh, when I find other investments, uh, I will start to make them. But St. You know, Joe has been a lot of hard work and just seeing the beginnings of, uh, of progress. The other significant investment, uh, at least when I saw your last filing that's still in the fund, is this company, Enterprise Product Partners, which um, I, I, I gather supplies hydrocarbons and their derivatives and the like. So it's got something like 50,000 miles of pipelines and 260 million barrels of liquid storage and 14 billion cubic feet of gas storage. So obviously it's got this very important infrastructure for the hydrocarbon business. Can you talk about how that embodies what you look for in a, in a business? Now, Enterprise uh, has a heck of a toll booth. It started 50 odd years ago. Duncan family, Mr. Duncan with, uh, I believe it was uh, two gas trucks. And he's turned it into a, well, well, he's passed away now, but the company's a $75 billion enterprise. They basically have a critical highway system of getting hydrocarbons from point A to point B. It's a gigantic uh, logistics company. They take it, separate, they upgrade, they store, they get it to where it needs to be, and they do it for a fee, for a very small fee. And they, they, they do it quite honestly and efficiently. They're, uh, they will help to lead to a cleaner environment. They're very much involved with the, uh, the company's processes. And enterprise isn't the only one, but in the substitution of natural gas for uh, coal and wood products. I mean, we burn more coal than we've ever burned. We burn more wood than we've ever burned. I mean, just substituting natural gas, a much cleaner energy source, would, would be a huge element uh, in cleaning up the environment. And especially when the world is growing and everybody around the world, they want what we have. They want a high quality of life. And there's a direct correlation between energy usage and quality of life. 
when you research a company, what you're basically trying to do is kill the business. You're, you're going through this process of asking these relentless questions about what could destroy the business. So when you look at a business like Enterprise or, or, or like St. Joe, what are the sort of questions that you're asking that our listeners, when, whether they're looking at these companies or at other companies, the sort of emblematic questions that are really helpful in a process of trying yeah. to decide yeah. whether a company can survive that process of, of, of uh, death by a thousand Bruce Berkowitz cuts? Well, in the case of enterprise, they, they have a very large distributable cash flow, about three and a half dollars uh, per share. They pay out seven and a half percent dividend distribution, but over two dollars per share. So they, they've averaged uh, you know, 12, 13, 15 percent per annum on the investment over the past 25 years. They've increased their dividend every year and they behave in a way that allows them to make money in all price environments. When you, you look back, it, does, it didn't matter the price of oil, natural gas, or enterprise. Their, uh, their fee basis uh, allows them to make a good profit. So it's a, it, that's why I call it it's a toll booth, where you want to call it an annuity with upside. And they're they're going to be in the they're going to be in the lead with now carbon sequestration that is carbon capturing of carbon from the flue stack and getting it underground, where eventually turns into rock, or whether it's going to be the you know the um, the ammonia hydrogen value chain. The hydrocarbons are not going anywhere. We need them for ninety seven percent of all products. If you take a look at medications, Tylenol, aspirin, ibuprofen. Uh, you name it, uh, Advil, all the names, they're all petroleum-based. Most drugs are. So the product is needed. It needs to be delivered in a cleaner form if it's going to be used for energy transportation. It's happening. The U.S. is already reducing its emissions. It's just the rest of the world that, that wants a higher quality that's catching up. And uh, Enterprise and others have done a very good job in uh, efficiently getting there, helping the United States to become energy independent, especially what's going on with uh, Russia, Ukraine, whether it's Iran. It's good that the United States is energy independent. It's good that the United States is able to help their friends when it comes to energy. But throughout history, energy seems to have been the, uh, the ultimate form of wealth or currency. So... The product's not going anywhere. It's absolutely essential. We're going to use more of it. We're going to use it in a cleaner way. And enterprise is going to continue to grow. And, uh, you know, 7.5% distribution. Now, it's a master limited partnership. So there are some attributes to MLPs that investor has to think about. But it's a great cash flow. The money comes in in up markets, down markets, sideways markets. At least over the last 25 years, and the next 25 years look look pretty good. It's the it's an easier story than St. Joe, and uh, I wish I understood the, the nature of midstream uh, companies sooner. But uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's a bit of a random process sometimes how you get from uh, uh, from one place uh, to another. Uh, but uh, I'm very impressed with the company, and you can count the cash easily. And the cash is quite significant. And you're, you're, you're starting off with a 10%, roughly 
about a 10% cash yield, distributable cash flow, and it's been and it's going to grow every year. And that should uh, that's all you need in this life to do very well. I think the richest man in the world in days gone by, uh, I think nine percent was all he needed. Mm. And I tell my kids, you don't need to do much better than eight nine percent as long as you don't lose. Does the fact that you haven't been able to find many other businesses or any really to include in your portfolio at scale say something about the environment that we're in at the moment? Does it does it reflect the fact that valuations are relatively high and there are few opportunities, or is it just that you've changed the way you invest and you wanna you wanna just bet on these two things that are incredibly long running investments? What what's going on well, here? Uh, yeah. I've been forced to change the way I invest. I mean, if you look at my history, it was Wells Fargo. It was Goldman Sachs. It was Bank of America coming back. It was AIG. And then it was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And, but Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were in, uh, are, in, are still in conservatorship after generating hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, and after I lost 9-0 in the Supreme Court of the United States on the issue of can the government continue to keep all the money that Freddie and Fannie earns. And you have to come to the conclusion that in highly regulated industries, there's a possibility that ownership is an illusion. In other words, if one bureaucrat can decide that two companies with five, six trillion dollars of assets can be taken in the name of national security or whatever you want to come up with, then what does that have to say about uh, your ownership position in those companies where the owners had no say, no vote, and where companies don't even talk to the owners? It's, uh, so normally, I would be a very heavy investor in banks today, given uh, the rising interest rates. It was pretty obvious what was going to happen with uh, interest rates going up. Uh, and the fair market value of banks' assets and liabilities dramatically changing. But how do you invest in a business where, again, one regulator on one panicky day can take your assets away from you? Really? So there's been a very marked shift in your approach to investing because of your experience with Fannie and Freddie, where just to fill in our, our listeners, my sense is, you'd bought preferred stock for something like a fifth of liquidation value. And then the government put them both in conservatorship in 2008 and, and basically took something like 80% of the companies. Uh, I'm probably getting this wrong. And, and then promised to inject tens of billions of dollars and then basically changed the plan around 2011 and 2012 and said, no, no, actually, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep the dividends as profits for ourselves. Is that basically what happened? Yeah, the government... Uh Two government agencies did a deal with themselves with each other as to how to keep all the money and push out all the uh, owners for an undetermined amount of time. Yes, that's basically uh, what happened. They uh, under conservatorship, a conservator, or in the case of Fannie and Freddie, a federal conservator can do whatever in the best interest of not just the estates, but for what's best for the country, which is a 
turns out to be a slightly different definition of what it means to be in conservatorship. And if that's the and you, you saw it recently with the uh, bank takeovers, uh, high flying one day, gone tomorrow. The owners did not have a chance to put more money in. They did not have a say in the matter. They were just told that you're wiped out. So if uh, you know, given how interest rates have risen from zero to where they are today, if banks truly marked all of their assets to market, not just their investments, but their loans. For example, if Bank of America gives me a, a home mortgage, uh, a 30-year mortgage for 3%, you know, what is that mortgage that they're holding worth today? It's not 100 cents on the dollar. But the, that loan, that mortgage will be on their books at 100 cents on the dollar. And if a regulator ever decides that we're going, we're entering a new period of uh, regulatory accounting where all assets must be marked to what they can be sold for, both loans and investments, then a lot of major players would be have significant equity deficits. And then it would be up to one or two individuals decide who wins, who loses, who lives, who dies. It surely will not be up to the owners of the company. So you, you, in a way, rose to stardom by going into these fairly murky situations where most people feared to tread, whether it was AIG, where you became the second largest shareholder after the government, or Bank of America, I think, back in about 2009, 2010, something like that. So you were, you were going into these companies that were very ugly, or general growth properties, when it was in, uh, going into bankruptcy. So the way that you were investing back then was was very different than what you're doing now, it sounds like. Yeah, I was literally counting the cash flows of the companies. In the case of the banks, when you looked at their uh, their earnings, you know, pre-tax, uh, pre-provisioning, you saw a huge cash flows and that those cash flows were going to be needed to resolve bad loans that they may have put on the books, like the proverbial pig going through the python. But there would be a limited amount of time. At the same time, banks put on the very best loans during the most difficult of times. They tighten up their standards. They charge more. They ask for more. They want more equity. Tough times, banks put on money, good loans, the safest of loans. So you could easily see how this was all going to to end, and it was going to end fairly well. There was more than enough earnings power from the company, and uh, yeah, that, and that's when I wrote the piece on Wells Fargo many moons ago. And you looked at their pre perk, you, you looked at their pre provision, pre tax, and they had more than enough wherewithal to get through their problems. They were going to come out, and they were going to hit spectacular earnings. Now, the saying should be true of uh, the banks today, unless the, the, you know, unless the rules change. Or, or, but there is this problem with uh, their, their equity to assets. And if, if, they, if they're required to keep the uh, you know, 10, 12, 15% equity assets, and it was really accounted for properly, uh, they would not have it. Then you would see significant nationalizations uh, 
across the across the board. So I, if I understood, you know, if I didn't, if I thought the rules would not change, and they probably will not change, then there are potentially some very good investments uh, out there, and I am looking at a few banks. But the situation is a lot worse than it's portrayed in the uh, quarterly reports of financial institutions. I'm I'm thinking in a way about the old days when you were a bookmaker and there was a sort of predictability in some ways, but then there were these moments of wildness where the guy upstairs could say, don't ever do that again, or someone could decide, you know, that they wanted to beat someone up or whatever. You, you know, it's a sort of unpredictable game. It feels like in a way what's happened here again is that with Fannie and Freddie and banks getting taken over, you started to realize the game's not as reliable and dependable. The rules, the rule, the rules are so unreliable that I can't be sure that I have an edge anymore. Is that a fair analogy? I think the government is less reliable than the guy upstairs. <laughs> I, I, I can't handicap it anymore. I thought that it was, if you told me that I would lose nine to zero in the Supreme Court of the United States over an issue of ownership, and whether or not uh, preferred share owners uh, uh, had a say uh, on $34, 36000000000 billion of investments, you would think you'd have some say. It's a very, country's going down a very slippery slope. Now, I understand some people thought this had to be done, but come on, they've made hundreds of billions of dollars, and now they're just a piggy bank for social programs. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's crack cocaine for the government now. I mean, how, do you, how, how are you going to give up that kind of uh, monthly income when you, when you want to make, you know, when you want to expand this social services net or you have an election coming up or you want to show the deficits not as bad or whatever you want to use uh, tens of billions of dollars a year for. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. 
They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. Talk, talk to me a little about Sears, which was, I guess, the other really ugly thing that you went through in recent years where you had started buying back in 2005 and you became the second largest owner after Eddie Lampert. And at one point you were on the board and then you stepped down from the board in, I think, 2017. And then eventually Sears filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2018. And I'm, I'm wondering like, what, the, what, what went wrong there? What was the what was the mistake you made? What was the mistake Eddie Lampert made? Like what, what happened and what was, um, what, what was preventable also? Well, I had a very simple thesis about CS that it was one of the largest real estate empires in the world. And that from a failed retailer can come a great real estate portfolio. That was my point. And that's what I was trying to push for. I thought it was very reasonable. I thought it was sensible. Uh, I did not think Sears was going to become the next Amazon, even though Amazon did become the next Sears. Uh, But the board didn't agree, agree with me. Eddie Lampert didn't agree with me. Today, I think that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to convert all of their remaining real estate into productive, mixed-use places, which makes tremendous sense to me. But that processing billion dollars earlier. But uh, it, it would have been a painful process, yes, with employees and so on. But that was my simple point. And there always seemed to be uh, the, re- the, the recovery of retail always seemed to be right around the corner but never came. So eventually, uh, I gave up. I, I thought it would have been easy. Eddie Lampert's a smart guy. I thought it would have been easy for him to see that uh, the only true defense would be to focus on the real estate, similar to Alexander and Alexander's and other retail stories of the past. Where, you know, these retailers were very popular places, very valuable land where uh, not far away from where people lived. And uh, oh, you're seeing it happen now everywhere. And it should have happened to Sears. So in a way, is your investment in St. Joe, where you, have, where you have much more control, also a reaction against the pain well, of Sears, where you're like, I didn't ultimately 
have that much say, that much control over what Eddie Lampert could do. If I was running Sears, I would have done for Sears what, I'm, what, what I've recommended to do at St. Joe, except at St. Joe, I'm the chairman uh, and uh, the management team agreed with me. I mean, it took time to find a management team that would agree with me, but uh, <laughs> they, uh, but the, you know, it's very sensible. You got to, you have to do what's best for all shareholders. You can't be a big, wealthy guy that has the ability to roll the dice and and take a chance. And and uh, you know, I believe that if you're going to be the chairman of a company, you have to be somewhat the captain of the ship. You're gonna if your ship's going down, you should go down with the ship. You should not tank your shareholders, or you should not see your shareholders suffer. That's why it's St. Joe. I don't take a penny. I don't take a I don't take a penny of compensation. I don't, don't even ask for my expenses to be reimbursed. Don't take a board salary. I don't take I've never taken a share of stock. And I won't. You know, I, if if St. Joe does well, I'll do very well. And all shareholders will do very well. And I'm at a point in my life where uh, I want to I see that. And I'm at a point now with St. Joe where I can start talking about the cash flows. It's not just the value of the real estate, but it very much is. I mean, you know, think about it. If you could buy a company and you buy it at $2,500 an acre, it's not that hard a stretch to think about $5,000 an acre, $10,000, $25,000, $100 million an acre. It just takes it just takes time, but we're seeing it now. If you go through the tax rolls, you go to the, the county assessors of Walton County or Bay County, you could see the transaction prices and what's going on there. It's quite uh, it's quite good. When when I look at your career, Bruce, it's 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 fascinating to me because in some ways it it brings up this very fundamental issue for investors, which is. That you need to diverge from the crowd in order to outperform, right? So you got to be a little bit, a little bit eccentric. You got to have the courage of your convictions, a really independent thinker, and you have to do what you like. I mean, because it requires a tremendous amount of work. So you have to follow what you like to do and what you think is going to win. You know, it was always my desire to invest clients' money the way I would invest my money. It wasn't to build a fabulous investment firm that could be sold. It was that I, for a reasonably small amount of money, so everybody take the ride together. And when and we get to a point, you know, if a St. Joe ended up becoming a Berkshire Hathaway and, you know, and it was no longer an investment, but everyone had their St. Joe shares distributed and uh, St. Joe did well for everyone. What a nice way to end. There's a real challenge here, though, which is that, as, as you pointed out in the past, the returns are lumpy and the path is winding. And most investors can't handle the volatility and don't have the patience and don't have the clarity of mind to see that there's this happy destination if they, if they keep going. And so, it's the same problem in a way that I saw in many of my interviews with Bill Miller over the years and also in my interviews with Joe Greenblatt, that like getting your investors to come with you on this ride that's very, not just with St. Joe, but throughout your career, because your, your returns going back to December 
1999 when you launched the Fairhome Fund have been really good, but so many people have failed to stay through the ride. How do you think through that issue that there's this kind of fundamental mismatch between what it takes actually to win the game and what shareholders can actually handle? I accept it. And that most of my shareholders, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't really even communicate with my shareholders because if they go through a brokerage firm, that, that information is considered private. So I, you know, I'll, I'll have a name, Schwab. Schwab will be a shareholder, but who those investors are Schwab, I, I don't know. So I try and write once in a while. I try and be clear. I, I, I try and make sure I eat my own cooking. Uh, and uh, so that I could, you know, I, I feel the pain, I feel the joy. I have a second fund, which is quite different than the first, which is a focused income fund, which has a very good record, especially for a, a period, the period we've been through with, uh, with interest rates. You know, that portfolio, believe us, roughly two thirds in United States Treasury bills, and it's done quite uh, so. There, there's a bit of a variation, but uh, but I understand if people are, are not interested in, in what I'm doing. I'm going to stay with it until the last shareholder leaves, and then I'll be done. It just it points at such an interesting philosophical question about investing. So I'm not saying any of this critically. I actually just think it really gets at a at a fundamental kind of mismatch, right? And. Um, so uh, the, someone called there is a mismatch. There yeah. is a mismatch in terms of you have a daily liquidity of a mutual fund, and you have a very large position. The only way I can uh, sort of handle uh, that mismatch is by is by having uh, being the significant shareholder in the fund and having a significant amount of uh, cash. And when the positions become quite large continuing to uh, sell some at, at appropriate times. But it is a problem. I mean, people, they want people, investors want it both ways. I mean, you're one investment of many. So they, there's, I mean, how much diversification does a person need? Multiple managers, multiple funds, but then you want diversification within each one of those separate funds. Uh, I can understand it, but you might, you might as well go into an index fund. Do you have other investments yourself? I mean, how, you, I know you put the bulk of your money in your funds. What, like, how do you think about diversifying with your family's fortune? No, it's uh, a shareholder uh, in each of the funds by far. Anything outside of the funds is invested the way I've invested for my, uh, my other shareholders. I am not in any investments that uh, not offering to other shareholders. Once in a while, I'll do something with my children just to help them progress. Uh, but no, I don't invest with uh, others, even though they're you know they're quite successful people out there. So no, I'm, I'm strictly eating the eating the cooking of uh, of what I've done for investors. And that's whether it's for my uh, the charitable foundation, family, next generation, we're, we're, we're all in it together. And uh, over time, 
the funds will be more diversified, but uh, it's going to take some time. Can you talk a little bit more about this issue of cash that that you raised? Because I've seen you say very interesting things about cash in the past. In in the interview I mentioned before that you'd done with Outstanding Investors Digest back in 2009, you said, it's not hard for me to be detached. This is emotionally during a very difficult time at the bottom of the market then in March 2009. You said, I think that's because I always keep three years of cash off to the side so my family will be fine whether it takes three years, five years, or even 10 years for a recovery in stock prices. And then another time you said, cash is the equivalent of financial valium. It keeps you cool, calm, and collected. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because you, you keep an uncommonly large amount of cash compared to a lot of the best investors. Well, I, I always have. And I felt the need to. I mean, there, you know, for, for unknown unknowns, emergencies, uh, I can't control, and I do it for the funds now. And I, and I have always had a relatively high cash position for for clients and for for my funds. Yes, it is all that. It's financial value. It gives you flexibility. Gives you the necessary liquidity. Uh, financial value being that uh, you don't have to worry about paying the bills and you could think about what something's going to be worth five, 10 years rather than uh, tomorrow. We'll get to that critical point that so many people do where they go through a very difficult period and then say to themselves, they always get to the same place. Can I afford to lose any more? In other words, can I afford for the investment to go down any lower in value. And of course, the answer is going to be no, and that's going to be the rationale for selling the investment. Usually that takes place when people do not have the appropriate liquidity to put aside. Yeah, I think it's important for anyone I'm dealing with or who's dealing with me that they do have a significant amount uh, in cash. So they, they don't develop uh, huge levels of anxiety over the investments. I'd be the first one to tell them to take money out. I remember once you also said that the people who had the smoothest ride were those in Bernie Madoff, and you said life is not smooth. And it 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 seems to me that part of the lesson of your career is that there have been so many ups and downs, and you have to set yourself up to survive. As as my friend Matt McLennan says, you you got to set yourself up to survive the dips. Yeah, the dips are very painful. Uh, you know, some people say it's easy, but it but it isn't, and it's it, it's it's easier for your own money than it is for for your clients and shareholders, because uh, you know, let's face it, most shareholders are going to base you based upon the price movement on a daily basis of uh, of the fund. That's it. They don't want to really know about the basics. You try and explain the company why it's good try and give analogies and so on, but most aren't interested. They just want to see you make the money in as smooth a possible way. It's just, there's no free lunch. It's either not free or it's not lunch. It's just there. You can't, you, you know, life isn't that smooth up into the right process. So how do you I'd like it to be? Yeah. How do you deal emotionally yourself with the difficult times? Because you've been through I mean, you went through this amazing period, right, in the first 10 years of the fund where you were, you were like, God, there was everything you touched um, right. turned to gold. And, 
and um, Morningstar said, you know, you were the the their manager of the decade, their domestic manager of the decade, and mm-hmm. I, I remember Get Fortune. Some yeah, Fortune said, um, uh, you know, you were some something like arguably the 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 greatest manager on earth, or something to that effect, something hyperbolic, and. And oh, then you good go. Thing to, I didn't read that. Yeah, and then you go to being like this fool who you know your long term returns have still been very good, but you you know o- over the last fifteen years um, you're you're trailing, and then everyone starts to kick the. Uh, I'm not allowed to swear on this podcast, but kick whatever out of you. And um, how do you how do you deal with that emotionally? Because it seems to me that managing your own emotions and keeping some sort of equanimity is along with having cash on the side and knowing knowing what you own is pretty key to actually being able to handle the pain of this 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 ride i don't pay a lot of attention to what people write i, I never did and i haven't and i'm grateful for what i have i mean it's been a very interesting uh, road and um i look back and i think boy Done a lot better than I ever thought I would. Have a great family. Try and spend time with them, especially make up all those times you didn't spend time with your family when you were on the road or building a business. And uh, I look forward to the future. Still many years left, and uh, I believe I'm wiser. Uh, and I don't think I'm going to make the same mistakes. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next 20 or 30 years, but uh, on my terms, where it's enjoyable, I don't market, I don't raise money, I don't look for clients. I mean, no, I'm just, I'm only dealing with people who, who, who want to be with me and, and that's it. And uh, so I've changed dramatically and appreciative of the past with all its ups and downs and look forward to the future. Is there a, is there a philosophical or spiritual or or religious kind of uh, well of wisdom that you can draw on that helps you to get through this stuff? Whether it's whether it's your your Jewish heritage, which I share, or Stoicism, which people like Bill Miller draw on, or philosophy, like like how how do you how do you how do you actually deal with this stuff philosophically so you can handle these ups and downs? You know, I, I feel like the downs was so long ago and, uh, I feel like the last few years are getting better. Last year was great. And, uh, uh, and I believe when um, the portfolio is in a good position, my family's in a great position. I control my day, do what I want, only talk to the people I want to, uh, and I'm learning new and I'm continuing to learn. And reading on subjects and understanding where I put my mind somewhere else, petroleum industry, midstream services. I, I, never, I never thought I would be reading books on uh, hydrocarbons and, and understanding the chemistry and trying to, you know, I, I spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out how the world really works. And I get significant joy from that. Yes, I want to do better. Yes, I want better performance. But I really just want better performance for the people who are with me. And, uh, and that's it. 
it's, um, it's um, less um, ego really quite at this stage much less ego driven no i'm and uh, i'm in the third act now hmm. of a three-act play so uh very happy i want to spend more time with my family i want to see saint joe develop into the company it's becoming it, it should become and uh, and i just want to figure out ways to just these days generate much more cash flow because of the uh, higher interest rates and i'm trying to figure out ways to uh, uh, lower the duration of investments because people i am a bit worried about all the different possible events around the world and i want to make sure that we're uh, ready for it. The portfolios are ready for it. And the companies in which I have invested in, uh, they are ready uh, for whatever adversity. In fact, not just ready for it, but being able to take advantage of it. Is, and in what form that comes, higher interest rates. Uh, you always ask yourself, what happens if a small nuclear device went off somewhere? How would you behave? How vulnerable is... Um is St. Joe and Florida in general, but particularly St. Joe, how vulnerable is it to global warming and adverse weather events? Because I, I, I have a close friend who's a, one of the great writers about environmental issues and, and the science of global warming and the like. And I remember him once coming back from a, a trip and being like somewhat hyperbolically is like Florida's toast, dude. And I mean, what, how do, given that you're somebody whose process is one of focusing on how to kill your business, how do you think through that issue of, of global warming and the impact of extreme weather events on Florida? It's an issue for Miami. It's an issue for the East Coast. It's an issue for part of the West Coast. I mean, the elevation of Miami International Airport, I think it's one foot or seven feet. I can't, I can't remember. I mean, all the airports are at basically zero elevation. I've been through a, been through a hurricane in Long Island. I've been through a hurricane in in Miami, St. Joe is elevated. Uh, the, the land, most of the land is between 20 and 70 plus feet above sea level. So there's no surge. There's no surge. Everything, it's fairly new construction. I mean, it, there are some old parts, but everything that St. Joe does is built to the latest hurricane standards. So even during Hurricane, uh, hurricane Michael, uh, there was very little damage. The only damage we had was to our uh, a couple of marinas, which were right on on the bay, but no flooding, construction, no issues, and it's the, the safest part of Florida. So, I mean, people in Florida will continue to build up in the same way people build up in Venice uh, or in other areas, but you're already built up uh, in Northwest Florida. So the insurance costs are reasonable. You just don't have the, the, the issues don't exist, even though there's a perception that they do. And, you know, they, yeah, it's a problem. If you're living in a double wide uh, on the bay, uh, you have an issue. But if you have, a, if you have a, a house or a townhome or apartment that's uh, fairly new, something that St. Joe's been involved in, uh, you have a very durable house and you have an elevation where you don't have to worry about surge. And you have the latest in uh, infrastructure, whether it's uh, gray water management, freshwater, electrical wires, underground. I mean, you, you have modern infrastructure. So it's, uh, it's quite good. It's actually 
quite a positive for the for the area. I mean, so we've been through bad weather and we come out of it bigger and better because people uh, uh, realize uh, the the natural defenses of, of the area. Going back to this issue of what your daily life looks like now, I, I like the fact that much like Bill Miller, actually, there's a sense that over the years of my interviewing Bill, that his life has become more and more aligned with who he is and he lives the way he wants to live and he does the work the way he wants to work. And there's something kind of beautiful about seeing that kind of stripping away of um, the stuff that you do to please other people and they're just living in a way that's kind of true to who you are. And I, I'm wondering like when you when you look at your regular day now, especially given that you only own a couple of couple of stocks, uh, how, do, how does it look? I mean, how, how do you spend much of your day? Because when Fortune wrote a profile of you back in 2010, you sounded like kind of a maniac, like answering emails at 4 a.m. and going for a power walk at 5 a.m. and then the basement gym and working seven days a week. Like, are you still like that or have you mellowed a little? Well, I'm still working long hours, but uh, it, it's 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 much less with talking with people than it is just investigating, just continuing to try and figure out how the world works. Whether it's you know understanding on new investments in uh, energy related assets or uh, the latest in the tax codes and the uh, various uh, uh, production incentives or or you know how everything correlates with everything else i'm still fascinated by that and uh, and i'm learning more about topics that i wish i learned more about in college whether it's you know how electricity really works or uh, quantum physics for computers or just the you know, basic chemistry biology uh, and how that relates uh, to the investments so i i am I, I have become more amused on learning uh, different aspects of, and improving uh, my education more so than I would have thought. I'm definitely not playing golf and I'm definitely not out there raising money. So I'm uh, very much still trying to uh, realize, I, I very much know that I still have a lot to learn and uh, I try and learn a little something every day. And are you less of a team player these years because i remember over the years you know you you, you had a, a partner charlie fernandez who was an important figure early on when you were investing in um in in the bankrupt mall business and the like and and, it, and then i guess you guys parted ways around 2011 like have you become more of a lone wolf over the years as you've become more kind of my you know my greatest success when I was when I was a lone wolf when I had a relatively simple operation and I was 100% responsible for the investments and that's that's been that's the case today I have failed miserably in trying to develop a team of people that uh I could pass the torch on to. I have failed in every way known. <laughs> and I've now, you know, come to the conclusion I'm just, I'm not capable of doing that. So uh, I'm staying very focused on the investment process. And I let everybody else handle the, uh, the widgets and the accounting and compliance. 
and they're very good people to do it, but I am the solely responsible for the investments of uh, Fairholme, including the research. And, and is it just because you're like a little ornery and independent-minded or what? Like, why, why was it so hard for you to have partners? I failed to, uh, at hiring people that can do the job that was needed. I don't mean to sound harsh, but uh, I selected the wrong people for the wrong tasks. Or, uh, you know, I, I did, you know, uh, you know, or I thought person A who was competent in a certain area could extend that competence to an adjacent area and just, it didn't work out. And in the end, I found out that I would have to do their work anyway. So it was, it was less work for me to do it to begin with. So I've when, always been focused. When you look at other top-notch investors who you've known over the years. I mean, I, I, I guess even when you, when you lived and worked back in Short Hills, New Jersey, you, lived, you worked in the same building where I once went to interview Michael Price. So I'm guessing you knew him well. You've invested alongside Bill Ackman. You, you know, you've met a lot, a lot of these very successful investors. What, what do they have in common? Like, are there things that you see in them that you think, there's a reason why these people win this well, game and most well, people don't. I don't th- I, well, I don't think I'm as smart as they are, nor as good looking. Huh. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I realize every year more and more I have a certain circle of competence. And basically it comes down to following the cash and uh, you know, coming up with some simple valuation methodologies and then, you know, going into minutiae. Uh, I mean, uh, to try and uh, figure out if I have a long-term, uh, long-term edge. So to some extent, uh, there may be common elements, but I, I frankly uh, don't know how Bill does what he does with macroeconomics. I don't know how Michael Price had a handle on you know, so many different companies. But I'm just going to stay focused on doing... Uh, what I believe I I can do well, and continue to do, and uh, just as Charlie Munger would say, you just you just need a few ideas in a lifetime to be wildly successful, and that's what I've stayed focused on. It seems like one of the keys when I look back on your career is this ability to stick with games that you can win. You know, when you said earlier in our conversation that you realized you couldn't handicap that game anymore. It seems like there's a through line that goes all the way back to you as a, as a 15 or 16-year-old boy trying to figure out the odds um, as a bookmaker, that you, you need to know that the odds are on your side. And so as you've evolved over the years, you, you know, the odds were heavily on your side when you were betting in on AIG and the like. But then later, once you saw that Fanny and Freddie went against you, you started to see, well, maybe the game's not as not being played the way it used to be played. And now with St. Joe, it's like you found a game where you have a really good sense that the odds are in your favor. Is that a fair kind of overarching view of your career trajectory? Yes, I think, I think that is fair. Uh, that uh, less volatility, you know, uh, less chance of what I would call takers. 
people out there that can take what you have, either by regulation or taxation. Yes, uh, uh, I keep narrowing the list down. <laughs> the The list of possibilities are getting slimmer and slimmer. And uh, you know, maybe you know, I'm you know, I'm all I'm studying waste management and uh, rebar and alternative technologies for rebar and uh, the great redomestication of industry in the United States and the implications of interest rates going up. And I keep trying to talk to smart people who I respect and. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's my day. And let me tell you, it goes by very quickly. Five o'clock in the morning starts. The only difference is I don't stay up as late anymore. I, I got the sense you were asleep by nine o'clock reading, read, you know, listening to audiobooks and reading annual reports and the like. And you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I'll start with the annual reports. Then when I, I'm done with the Kindle and or the PDFs, then it's straight to audiobooks. Yeah, especially uh, yes, my the latest was who is it? Um, the latest is Vaclav Smil. Oh yeah, his Energy and Civilization. Very uh, very prolific author. Yeah, I have How It Works, which I I gather I have to read, but I haven't actually got around to reading yet. But I I I know that it's the sort of thing I need to read. It's quite good. <laughs> I, I've given it to all my kids. I don't know if they've read it, but I've given it to them. What um, I mean, you ha you have these three children, right? Who are adult, right? Daniel, Alexander, and Chloe. So, um, two sons and a and a daughter. And and I know your daughter is very involved with your foundation and your art collection and the like. What what have what have you tried to convey to them over the years about what you what you've learned about how to construct a happy and successful and abundant life because i'm sure that's a that's a big concern when you're as successful as you've been not to let the money screw up your family and um what what do you try to um to convey to your your adult kids about how to live well they well they know that most of it's going to be given away via the foundation and uh other than that i just try and help them and uh, give them advice when they want to hear it from me and uh, keep telling them to do what they like. Uh, you know, uh, well, I didn't know anything of art, but Chloe, art history and had a knack for artwork. So I support her in that. Daniel with real estate, if uh, I'll support him with that. My son Alex is finishing up law school. So I don't have the slightest idea what type of law he'll be practicing. So I'd you know, whatever makes them happy and productive, that's really all that I care about. And you're unusual in that you've actually managed to sustain a marriage for a very long time in the investment industry. I, I, you know, I've mentioned before on the podcast, when Charlie Munger read my book, he said uh, one of the things that struck him was just how many of us got divorced, as he put it. You know, like, like, and he said it made sense because it's such an all-consuming business. Uh, that it's very easy to neglect your your partner, and you got married to Tracy, I think, in 1980. So this is like getting on for 44 years after meeting in your dorm at UMass. And I read this old interview that you did with Graham and Doddsville, in which you said, "It's important whom you marry. The right person will be beyond words helpful, and the wrong person will destroy everything in your life." And I I wondered if you had advice for our listeners who are trying to figure out 
how do I actually be successful in, in my profession with all of the intensity that that requires and yet not wreck my family, you know, not be hated by my wife and kids, you know, what, what do you actually, like, how do you, how, what have you learned about getting that balance right, both through failures and successes over the years? Well, so one aspect, uh, maybe more up to Tracy and this to me in terms of being tolerant. I think in the case of Tracy, uh, I'm sure she's keeping one eye closed when looking at me. And uh, <laughs> I think that's a good idea for everyone to do that. Uh, you go into something with both eyes wide open, but uh, you got to relax a little bit, keep one eye closed. And, uh, and you got to realize you know, your children are different than you are. Uh, they're going to they're gonna pursue their own path and you want them to be happy and healthy and productive and that's all you can ask for. Anything, everything, anything else is a cherry on the topping. So it's more you'll have to ask Tracy that question about how she's been willing to put up with me as opposed to my ability to uh, uh, keep Tracy uh, uh, happy staying with me when uh, she sees this pretty monotonous uh, daily routine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Munger always said that the key to a successful marriage was low expectations, right? <laughs> I think he was only half joking. <laughs> oh, I think he was half joking. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and uh, sometimes even to have a bit lower expectations for yourself. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you've become less hard on yourself over the years? I'm trying to. There's no one that's more critical than, you know, you know, I know when I've made a mistake and I, you know, I feel it and analyze it to uh, death. I mean, in terms of postmortems and uh, got to let it go and move on. Do you, do you have big regrets when you look back on your career or your life or anything? Or is that just not the way you function? No, I don't have big regrets. Uh, in fact, I'm quite happy. Instead of uh, having a disaster with Fannie and Freddie, what happens if it was a disaster with Wells Fargo early in my career? So it's in a way, what I'm hearing from what you're saying now and from earlier in the conversation is you have this ability to reframe things so that they, um, they don't seem that brutal to you. Like you're, you're like, well, I'm still pretty lucky. I'm still happy. I, tr I, I try to. I don't want to make it sound like it's that easy, right? A lot of uh, high-performing people are very critical of themselves, and uh, sometimes it's difficult to move forward. But but really what you learn is you, you, your ultimate success is based upon how well you do after a failure. I mean, everyone has plenty, you know, no, no one, no one's adding a thousand. The question is, how do you, how do you change your way? How do you perform um, after it? How do you handle that failure, learn from it and uh, move on? I, I feel like sometimes I, I, you, I, I look at my family history, which I suspect is not that different than yours that, you know, my family fled from Russia and Poland and Ukraine and pogroms and the like. And I was always, I, I mean, I, I ended up at Eton, right, surrounded by all of these really posh kids. And I always had this tremendous pride 
in the fact that my family was decidedly not posh, that they were just incredibly resilient. And, you know, I, my, my narrative about my family and my own mind was that I would think of my grandfather who slept in the kitchen with his brother in Glasgow, and one of them became an eye surgeon and one became a brain surgeon. So it was all sort of drive and intelligence. And, and there's something, I do wonder if just that sheer ability to be resilient through thick and thin is something that we learn from seeing our, our ancestors having to flee from different countries and the like. Do, does, do, do you have that same sense of your family history of, as one of resilience and having to adapt and recover from setbacks? Well, I, I wish I could tell you more about my family history, but uh, it goes back a few generations that it wasn't even to a large extent discussed. It was not, uh, and you know, growing up was very, you know, could be very difficult. So I, I understood what it was like to not have any money or to, to be hungry uh, or uh, to be not to, to be out of work. So, I mean, this is. Uh, when when you go through that kind of hardship as a kid, uh, it doesn't seem that difficult uh, to uh, have to put up with uh, these uh, severe blows. I mean, I've, that's the way I rationalize it. That I'm very lucky, super lucky uh, that um, uh, I'm alive at an age uh, that some people don't make it to. Kids are happy and healthy. Wife still loves me. Nothing to complain about. No hardship. Feel good. Still have, I think, a good uh, 20 years left in me. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Because uh, if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. I don't think, I mean, after decades, I don't think you can fake it. I mean, did you, you have to enjoy it or you won't do it. Yeah. And if anything, uh, I'm learning more. And I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. Bruce, that's a beautiful note on which to end. <laughs> You're in good company. I have no idea either, but God willing, <laughs> it's all going to be okay. Well, thank you. It's been uh, very enjoyable. Uh, I hope I haven't bored you too much. Oh, it's been a great treat. And I've, I've really enjoyed you know, studying, studying your life over the last few days. And, uh, uh, and, and you've had such an interesting interesting career and i i'm sort of i'm temperamentally very much on your side because i i i love this kind of long-term contrarian very independent spirited approach to investing so i yeah. wish you much success well, I'm, I'm very impressed with your research i mean you you pulled out some nuggets i haven't thought about in a long time uh so uh i don't even remember talking about that in any interview some of it so uh you have the great skill uh, of the uh, digging in for the investor. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, th I suspect that investing and investigative journalism probably are not that dissimilar. And so just the voracious desire for, for more information and to understand things better. And, and not uh, at a certain point, I was saying this to you before our conversation started, that you start to feel almost like you're insane because you're so obsessive that you, you, you keep researching and studying and learning about stuff long beyond the point where it really makes rational sense. Yes, I've been told that. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when you, you know, the internet has created a whole new insanity for me. I mean, the ability to go back 
10 years. And as you do, go back to what someone said 10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago, how they've changed. Uh, does it make sense what they're saying? Are they willing to address their mistakes of the past? Uh, is it fairly, uh, is it consistent? Just uh, spend a lot of time digging in, a lot of time, especially if it's a public company with tens of billions of dollars uh, with a tremendous amount of information on it. Yeah. And some people, some people know how much, how far to go, and that's enough. But that's the problem with focused investing. You know, if it's 1%, maybe you could stop there. But if you want to make it a meaningful difference in your life, uh, you keep going, especially if it's interesting. Yeah, I think you have to be a little crazy. There's got to be an intensity and an obsessiveness, really, to get really good at anything. And so... What, what's the term for that? You got to be a little bit on the spectrum? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that's... Yeah, that's quite true. I think I, a quite normal person wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> on that note, Bruce, it's been such a delight. All right. I, I hope Very I'll nice get to talk, to, talk to, you. to you again before, before long. Hopefully, maybe, uh, maybe in Florida, I'll come visit uh, St. Joe finally. All right. Please do. I'll give you the tour. That'd be wonderful. All right. Lovely All right. to chat. Thank, Thank you, you so much. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the remarkable Bruce Berkowitz. As I'm sure you could tell, I had an absolute blast interviewing him and find him a fascinating character. I'm guessing some people will be appalled by the fact that Bruce has so much money riding on one stock and will think it's grossly irresponsible. I definitely agree that this isn't something that any of our listeners ought to do, but there's something very impressive to me about the strength of Bruce's conviction, and I think it makes some sense that he's betting for the very long term on a business where he has a good deal of control as chairman of the board. In any case, I'll be back very soon with some more fascinating guests, including a long, in-depth conversation that I recently had with my old friend Guy Spear at his home in the Swiss Alps. In the meantime, please feel free to follow me on Twitter at WilliamGreen72 and do let me know how you're liking the podcast. I'm always delighted to hear from you. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to follow Richer, Wiser, Happier on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on episodes. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. 